Welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. My name is Mark Smith and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. This week's exchange is with Steve Reich. The American composer can comfortably claim to have shaped the evolution of music in the 20th century and the ramifications of his influence are still playing out in the present day. While his tonal, rhythmic compositions have penetrated both popular culture and the academy, he emerged in a context in which avant-garde music was unintelligible outside of a small niche. Making modernism understandable to a general audience is perhaps his greatest achievement, but it wasn't as inevitable as it seems in hindsight. When I spoke to Reich the night after a performance of his work in Amsterdam, as part of RA's conference at Deckmantle Festival back in August, we look at how an outsider slowly shifted cultural sensibilities with a sound that connects with an ever-wider audience as time goes by. You can find our full archive of exchanges at residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. The exchange with Steve Reich is up next. As you said, some of your work was performed last night to open the festival, and over the coming days we'll be hearing all sorts of electronic music performed live, DJs, some jazz. Tens of thousands of primarily young people will be in attendance, and your name is on the marquee, so to speak. 
um, an avant-garde composer who's been at it for decades and decades. Perhaps you're used to it now, but are you surprised that seemingly more and more people with each coming generation are seemingly increasingly excited about your music? I think it's a good thing. <laughs> it's certainly something I did not anticipate. I mean, look, when I was, uh, I was uh, 14 years old, I heard uh, three uh, musics that sort of determined my uh, musical direction. I'd never heard The Rite of Spring by Igor Stravinsky. I heard it at 14. And I thought, this is the most amazing thing I've ever heard in my life. I want to do that. And about two weeks later, I heard the, the fifth Brandenburg Concerto of Johann Sebastian Bach. I'd never heard Bach at the age of 14. And a couple of weeks after that, I'd heard a lot of popular music, but I'd never heard any real jazz. I heard Charlie Parker and Miles Davis, the drummer Kenny Clark. And I stopped studying piano. I started studying percussion, drumming. And uh, my life kind of like took a direction then that it still has now. Now, from the bebop part of it, I used to go, this is the 1950s, I was in high school, I'd go down to Birdland, which was on uh, 52nd Street off of Broadway. And I'd sit in the kitty section where I couldn't drink. And here, Miles Davis and Bud Powell and uh, Dizzy Gillespie and my idol, Kenny Clark, the drummer. And um, then later, when I was at Juilliard School of Music, uh, uh, I used to go at night to hear John Coltrane uh, playing the Five Spot in New York City. Later, when I was in graduate school at Mills College in uh, San Francisco, well, actually in Oakland, I used to go, I lived in San Francisco, I used to go to the Jazz Workshop to hear John Coltrane, uh, who had a huge influence on me. So I think if you, uh, you know, put, you know, Igor Stravinsky and Bella Bartok and Johann Sebastian Bach and John Coltrane and Miles Davis uh, and West African drumming and Balinese gamelan. You put them in a bottle and shake them up real well. That's what I've come out of. So uh, there's some kind of poetic justice for people. I mean, I remember in 19, uh, I think about 73 or 4, my, my, I had an ensemble for 40 years, Steve Rush Musicians. We traveled around the world, and we played the Holland Festival many times. And uh, we were in London at the Queen Elizabeth Hall, and uh, we were playing, I think, uh, six pianos and four orchestras and stuff like that. At the end of the concert, a guy comes up, long-haired lipstick, says, how do you do? I'm Brian Eno. And I think, poetic justice, you know. I'm sitting on the bar stool in, in Birdland. He's sitting in the audience listening to me. Uh, 1976, we played the world premiere, the European premiere of Music for 18 Musicians at the National Gallery in Berlin. David Bowie was there. Same thing. I think that if, when you're young, you're attracted to the, um, the most interesting music, popular music of the day, that that's part of who you are. And somehow that will manifest itself in your music, and that music will draw in people who, at a later date, are interested in the equivalent kind of music. And that's the only sense I can make out of it. But how does this contrast with um, some of the reactions surrounding like uh, early premieres of some of your work in the 60s and 70s? Because I read that um, some of your pieces were causing people to uh, lose their minds in, in uproar. They were scandalized by your music. Yeah, it's true. Uh, let's see, the two equations that, that pop in my mind, I was on some radio station in New York shortly after. It's the piece after that you heard the first half of It's Gonna Rain was called Come Out. And uh, that was played on some radio station in New York, I, I think WBAI. And um, the switchboard lit up. And so he said, you know, your record's stuck in a groove, your transmitter's broken when you fix that thing. And, you know, I kind of thought, okay, you know, I, I, I see where you're coming from. 
1973, Michael Tosin Thomas, the conductor, wanted, we did the piece Four Organs, which is a very uh, abrasive piece for four mini, uh, Farfisa mini compact 70 rock organs from the 70s and maracas. And um, he invited me, we did it up in Boston, the Boston Symphony Orchestra, and it was kind of polite booze and polite bravo. And then we took it down to Carnegie Hall in New York in 1973. And it was, by the time people began to realize that chord's not gonna change. <laughs> it's gonna get longer, but it's not gonna change. It really got pretty nervous. And pretty soon it got so loud, we could barely hear each other. It's a real complicated piece to play. So Michael started saying, one, two, three, four, five, just so we could count and stay together. And uh, when it was all over, I turned white as a sheet. I want people to love my music. But Michael looked at me and said, this is great. This is history. So, I mean, you know, whatever you say. So, yes, it, this kind of music. Remember, when, when I was coming up in the 60s, what was the big deal in, quote, classical music? It was Stockhausen and Boulez and uh, my, my, my teacher, Luciano Berrio, and John Cage, which we affectionately call blue bleep music. Uh, this was not the kind of electronic music that you guys are making. And um, it was very difficult to listen to. It was not, uh, there was no melody in, in any recognizable sense of the word. There was no harmony in any recognizable sense of the word. So uh, what we did against that background to those people who were teaching or who had listened to that, that was like, what are you doing? You're, you know, you're using consonant intervals and you're trying to write melodies and all kinds of things in a way we haven't heard before at a slow, slow pace that we haven't got time for. But of course, Rites of Spring caused riots as well. Were you, Absolutely. Were you happy to be in a lineage of people who are well, that, bucking the establishment? That, that's what Michael Tilson Thomas was, was alluding to when Stravinsky did the Rite of Spring in Paris. Nijinsky, the choreographer, was offstage yelling the numbers to the dancers because it was so loud they couldn't hear the, the, the changing meters. So when Michael was yelling the numbers at us, he had this flash, ah, Nijinsky. Okay, it wasn't, the, the Rite of Spring is... Is, a, is, is greater than anything that I've achieved or anybody alive today has achieved. But, you know, that, that he made that analogy is great. And actually, um, about, two, three, well, about six months ago, David Robertson, who's taken over the, uh, the uh, leadership of the Sydney Australia Symphony, programmed the Writer's Spring and my piece of desert music. And they both, the audience and the critics love both. And I thought, wow, you know, just to be on the same program. This is obviously a huge change, though. Um, when did you get a sense that your work was beginning to be accepted and venerated and now even canonized almost? Because you're starting essentially from a fairly outside position. You're saying that serialism is the dominant form of the time. Right. Yeah. Can you describe your experience, in hindsight at least, of the transition from one to the other? If you're doing music in public, if you're doing anything in public, you know, you better have a rhinoceros skin because there are going to be people that are just going to, you know, lay into you. I don't care what you're doing. So, you know, uh, Tosa Thomas said to me, he said, read reviews six months after they're out. Nobody gives a damn. <laughs> so that's good advice. Of course, it's hard not to look. But I mean, uh, I had a few friends, you know, I, I, when I was in California, I was in touch with Riley in New York. I, was in, I had a, a Phil Glass and I had a moving company, Chelsea Light Moving. So... I mean, I knew that I knew there was something, and I had faith that we were working with musical materials, which are basically very basic, you know, uh, consonant intervals, repetition, uh, things that existed in our music and in other cultures' music, very, very powerfully. And I felt that uh, you know, there, there's there's a basis for this. It's not some, you know, left field weird trip that's going to have a few minutes and then bye bye. <laughs> 
Yeah, there were definitely, you know, some depressing, you know, times and uh, perseverance furthers. Mm. A nice thing to see last night was different audience members um, bopping their head along. Some of them are on tripler time and some of them are on quiver time and things like this. Do you think it's fair to say that your music kind of shows that there's multiple time signatures within a single time signature or multiple tempos within a single tempo? Well, right now, what you heard in, the, in Pat Metheny was basically, you know, one, two, three, 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 four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. That, that in the same space of time, you can have four groups of three or three groups of four. Writing music in, in a kind of uh, three, two equals six, four equals 12, eight meter, it's a sort of all-purpose ambiguous three. And... Uh, if you're going to write music, which is repetitious, then there's got to be some way whereby in the ear of the listener, they, can, they are invited, almost forced, to reassemble the construction of what they're listening to so that the end becomes the beginning or that they hear certain notes sticking out. I mean, when you listen to it, it's going to rain. You're telling me, it's gone, 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 or you're going, rain, 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 and that's relatively simple. But that's just naturally going to happen because it's, it's in the music. It invites you to shift your attention from one thing to the other. Um, and uh, so that becomes part of the technique of writing something so that if a critic says, well, it was just boring and repetitious, well, it was repetitious, but it wasn't boring. For him, it was boring, or for her, it was boring. But if they listened to it a few times, they would find, hey, there's a lot to listen to, but it's changing all the time. So was it more, say, like establishment critics who were skeptical about the simplicity versus the general public who were experiencing the music? Yeah, I would say that the, uh, for me, and uh, even Stravinsky said this, I think the, the keynote for, to, to, you know, if you, want, if you want to see which way the wind is blowing, the first thing is if you write for other musicians, how do they react? Now, last night at the concert, one of the things that knocked me out was, was the, the uh, Schlagwerk Den Haag. I, I knew of them, and I had actually probably performed with them before. But, I mean, they're really good players, and they really enjoyed what they were doing. And if a musician, you know, it's one thing if an audience member comes up and says, oh, I love the piece, changed my life. That's great. I mean, it's good. It's real. I mean, I love to hear it. But if a musician says it, that's twice as much. Because that's a person who's spending their life, has spent years and years and years studying their instrument. And if they say so, it's like somebody, you know, who, it's like going, you know, I feel pretty good. But you go to the doctor, he says, hey, you're in good health. You feel, hey, okay, I really am. Because guy knows what he's talking about. <laughs> so musicians know what they're talking about. So uh, it doesn't mean, you know, that every musician is always going to get it right. But yes, it, that, that makes a big difference. And they, the musical community is kind of driving the bus. And behind them are the music lovers. What? And in the back of the bus are the music critics. Only they sometimes have the illusion that they're driving. <laughs> Very wise words. <laughs> um, you mentioned uh, serialism. Can you just describe quickly how, how pervasive its influence was at the time when, when you and your contemporaries were coming up? And would you think it was more of a, an expression of European culture than American culture? Basically, if you look at German romanticism after Beethoven and you go you know, Schumann, Schubert, Brahms, uh, Mahler, into Wagner, but time, what, two things happen. Number one, you get more changes of key. In other words, it becomes less clear what key you're in. And you get less tap-your-foot type rhythms and more kind of the conductor giving you gesture. The Germans call the word for it, they call it gestus. 
In other words, it's not like this. It's any orchestra can play Mozart without a conductor. No orchestra can play Mahler without a conductor. Now, why? Because in the Mahler, there's no tap, tap, tap. It's the gesture of the... Con they used to joke, they said, well, you know, it's the beat when, the, when you hit the third button of the conductor's jacket. That kind of uh, Central European, late 19th century uh, freedom from the pulse becomes very, and Wagner is the kind of the final dropping off point there where you really have no idea in many famous Tristan chord, you know, what key, it was so ambiguous as to what key you were in. Schoenberg heard that, took the right cue and said, okay, let's get rid of keys and substitute this 12-tone system. 12-tone system was, okay, let's just take the 12, you know, from C to C, you got this, got C, D, E, you got C, C sharp, D, E flat, E, F, all these semitones, all the way going up to the next octave. So Schoenberg said, look, they're all equal, which they're not, and, uh, and, and we're going to order a certain order of them, and that will be called a row, and that row will be the organizing principle for a piece of music. Sounds good on paper. And uh, I had to do it, and I did it. And uh, <laughs> what I used to do was, once you get the row, you're supposed to then play the row backwards, retrograde, or, or what they call uh, invert, which means if you go from C to C sharp, you go up a, ha a half step, you go C to, to B, down a half step. But I didn't invert the row. I didn't transpose the row to another note. I just repeated the row over and over and over again, trying to squeeze in some harmony. <laughs> and my teacher, Luciano Berrio, who was one of the serious, but, but Italian, you know, said, very flexible, very nice guy, very open to a lot of things. He said, if you want to write tonal music, why don't you write tonal music? I said, that's what I'm trying to do. So... Uh, this kind of music, then, uh, the difference between 12-tone music and serial music is that after World War II, people like Boulez and Stockhausen, who were the next generation after Schoenberg, Bergen, Weber, who had been, you know, in the first part of the 20th century, said, okay, well, not only can you order the 12 notes, but you can order all the dynamics. So instead of, you know, piano quiet, mezzo-piano fairly quiet, Mezzo forte, fairly loud, forte loud, double forte. We can make an order of those dynamics and we'll also order them in some row. And then we'll put them on one side of the page and the pitch is on the bottom and then we can make magic squares. <laughs> and then we can serialize durations. And so we will have, you know, 16th notes and eighth notes and quarter notes and half notes and whole notes and double whole notes and we will serialize those too. So all these parameters, real parameters of music could be serialized and kind of theoretically combined uh, to create music, which is, is very difficult to listen to. <laughs> Intellectually, it really was interesting. And the early music that I did, like piano phase or violin phase, is very systematic. And undoubtedly, that turn, and so is Arvo Peretz. Early music, very systematic. It's gorgeous, but there's a system working there. And that feeling that you had to have a system comes from being in the generation that followed the serialists. So, okay, we'll throw this out, but that general attitude of that there be some kind of uh, structure, to, very strong structure to the music was there. And that's a kind of good, uh, that's not a bad thing. I mean, you know, and Sebastian Bach is gorgeous, but he's also, wow, you look at what he's doing, man. It's, it's incredible, structurally. And you didn't have a conductor at all last night, of course. No, you don't need a conductor for my music because uh, it has a regular pulse. And it is basically what I write, 
throughout my life, with very few exceptions, is basically chamber music. And chamber music is defined usually as one player to a part and no conductor. And so how do the people stay together? Well, they, 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 they hear each other. They must hear each other. So they must set up on stage close enough so that they can hear each other. And if they can't, like uh, the uh, tuba in drumming, the front marimba and the back marimba are about 30 feet apart. And at the transition from the end of the marimbas to the beginning of the glockenspiels, the, the three extreme positions in the, in the marimba have to lock in together. And they can barely hear each other. So we put in monitor speakers. Put, we, we use electronics to augment that possibility of hearing what that guy 30 feet away is doing. So each, so in other words, electronics are used not to make it loud, not to make it rock and roll, not for effects, but to simply create acoustics which make it possible to play. But the larger answer to your question is that basically, when I was at Juilliard, there were kind of, it wasn't enunciated, but there were basically two kinds of musicians. Those who were preparing to go into the orchestra. And they were interested in a career and medical insurance and uh, you know, uh, a whole lot of stuff. Uh, the other people were gonna be chamber music, were gonna have to kind of invent their own lives, musically speaking. Uh, some of them formed string quartets. Some of them became freelance musicians, which you can only do in a city like New York or Los Angeles uh, or London. I think it'd be harder, uh, harder here in, in, uh, in Holland. But I'm, undoubtedly, there are freelance musicians here, and they, they, they do work. And, and these people are generally playing in smaller groups where you don't need a conductor. Or and even if you do, the chamber music attitude of really listening, of how certain, have you ever watched a string quartet in the first while? There's a lot of body English, right? There's a lot of movement. And that movement is not just, you know, it's really giving the gesture. So all the players kind of, they, they, they get the sense of how the music should go by the expressiveness in their body, which is picked up by the other players. And that happens a lot in my music, and that's, that's a natural reaction to, to, uh, to playing in a smaller group where everybody's listening and looking at each other. Last night was one of the few times I've seen your music in person. There were certain stages, I think, at the end of the second part of drumming when it goes into the section with the glockenspiels. You get a really strong sense of the big billowing clouds of harmonics and the sort of like psychoacoustic effects that they create. And it made me think of uh, the likes of Tony Conrad and Lamont Young, who of course were coming through same country, similar sort of period of time. And a similar sort of uh, reaction to serialism where you're honing into a single note and but finding a system within that with harmonics and specific tuning systems and stuff like that. You all get lumped together as minimalists, bad term of course, but was that sort of thinking of interest to you at the time? Did that leave any impression? Well, I think in Lamont, basically, he's interested in different scales and different tunings, and same thing with Tony Conrad, and I was really not. I mean, my attitude was, if you can't find it on 48th Street, the hell with it. I wanted to be part of the musical community. Lamont's music has basically left the musical community because you have to spend time changing the nature of your instrument's tuning to play the music, and that sort of puts you in a kind of a ghetto. Uh, that's not to say that what Lamont's doing is, is not important and who knows what importance it will have in the future. And certainly in electronics, uh, that can be done very easily. And there's all kinds of room for different tunings and different scales and whatnot within electronics, and which is very idiomatic and which I'm sure some people right here in this room are dealing with. 
When I was working on the drumming, on the uh, marimba section of drumming, uh, the way I worked, I think I mentioned it briefly last night, is uh, I had the instruments in the room and I was playing them and I was recording myself on a multi-track tape recorder, because it's before computers. And uh, I would record the pattern many, many, many times and I'd rewind the tape instead of making a loop. And then I would start playing in unison and I'd try to phase one beat ahead and two, trying to see which relationship canonically because basically it's like row, row, row your boat, except instead of coming in at one place, you're sliding to different positions and then fixing at those positions. Which one was the most interesting musically? And while I was doing it, I began to hear women's voices. And you know, I was straight, you know, no, no dope, you know. And um, so I thought, well, you know, really hear these women singing. What if I invited some women singers over and just they would sing the things that I hear, which are really there. They're really the product of these interlocking patterns. I, did any of you notice last night that the women would sing and then after they were done, you would still hear it? That's the idea. That is the idea. It's like giving a chalk talk. It's like saying, well, you see, you know, this particular brown stripe here, you know, <laughs> and it's picking something out of a fabric of sound, and the voices pick it out after a lot of rehearsal and choosing what what, and then, hey, oh yeah, yeah, and then they kind of fade out. As they fade it out, they lead you back into where it started, which is in the in the in the in the instruments. And the same thing with the glocks. Only with the glocks, hey, you can't sing that high. Nobody can sing that high. So, ergo, one of the sing one of the singers starts to whistle. And then after a while it gets too high to even whistle, and that comes the piccolo player. Now that is definitely dealing with, um, you're absolutely right, there's a cloud of overtones, difference tones, all kinds of acoustic byproducts of the instrumental sound, and especially when you multiply the same timbre. If you, if you were to sprinkle some kind of magic talcum powder in the room last night, you'd see these waves, and they hit the walls, and then they, they, call, they form what they call standing waves, and they become reinforced. And that has to do with the architecture of the room. That's why certain notes will pop in certain rooms. The answer to your question is yes, the, 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 that, that, that phenomenon is true. Whenever you stay put harmonically in a certain area and you develop rhythmically instead, then you'll have this cloud over you. And as you change slowly harmonically, that cloud will change also. But then in addition, you have the actual notes throwing up their individual sort of ghosts, which sound like women or whistling or, or piccolo. And that is, that is really an integral part of drumming to say, okay, let's pick up on that and actually have those instruments play it. What drew you to the San Francisco Tape Center in the 60s? I, I went to the San Francisco Tape Music Center to, uh, to help Terry Riley give the first performance of NC. I went to the San Francisco Music Center to say howdy-do from time to time. And I presented um, It's Gonna Rain premiere there. But I worked at home entirely. I had nothing to do with the uh, day-to-day operations there. Did you have any interest in the uh, work that the likes of Don Buchler and Morton Subotnik were putting into synthesis at the time? Zero. Uh, I'm really, uh, excuse me, I know I'm who I'm in the presence of. I'm not interested in synthesis. I'm not interested in electronically generated sound. Don't attack me. <laughs> I, I, I mean, look, hey, you know, everybody's entitled. I, in the early days, my feeling was, hey, I don't want something that sounds like a violin. I want a violin. And I used to say, well, look, if you, if you had a, a violinist and you had an oscilloscope, and you said to the violinist, okay, I want you to play the A string. Perfect, you know, don't, don't do anything. Just go, mm, you know. And if you, well, let's, first you take the, the, the synthesizer 
and you play A440 into the, into the oscilloscope. And I don't know what the waveform is, the sine wave, the square wave, sawtooth, whatever. And, and it's relatively constant, right? Then you say to the violin, the same thing. And what do you see? All this irregularity. And what I'm saying, what I said then, is that the ear unconsciously is attracted to that little micro-variation. Now, I think that in the time, which I'm now talking about, what, 1960s to now, a lot of that has been understood by a lot of, not just you, but by your predecessors, and a lot of random uh, you know, generators have been put in to complicate the waveform so that they imitate that irregularity that is found in acoustic sound. Nevertheless, I would bet that you're still going to have this you know, difference between the, uh, the, uh, the acoustic sound uh, run through a scope and analyzed as opposed to whatever, you know, we could have a meeting of the giants, you know. I mean, <laughs> well, you know, IBM beat the greatest chess player, so you never know. But I mean, uh, I'm still betting on acoustic sound. Uh, but you were interested in um, tape, obviously. Yes. Well, for me, tape was the key. You, know, you, see, you, say, you say to some people, they say tape, and you know that in their mind, they're thinking about scotch wrapping tape, you know. <laughs> so I say, no, that was a tape, you know, which was actually audio tape. How many people here ever even saw a piece of audio tape? Oh, okay. Well, you're all a bunch of uh, you're antiquarians, aren't you? <laughs> Vinyl's back too, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> well, I know for a while that the, the, well, the Scully 2 track was back in vogue because everybody wanted to warm their sound up with tube amplifiers and, and two-inch tape. And uh, maybe there's some truth to that. I don't know. Uh, but uh, that's, uh, I certainly recorded that way many times. Yes, tape for, you know, as a matter of fact, the phrase was, there was a distinction between tape music, which was basically analog, and electronic music, which was coming out of generators, out of early synths or out of, out of sine wave generators. Uh, and so back in the day, uh, 60s, 70s, that was a distinction between tape and electronic. And I was, on the, I tell you one of the things that, that pushed me in that direction, I studied with Luciano Berrio, who, as I mentioned to you, was a, a, a serious malgré lui. <laughs> he was a very warm, open musical guy. And he was interested in jazz, and he was interested in, in Beatles, and he was interested in, in, you know, Magic Squares and Monteverdi and you name it. And um, the first piece I heard of his, um, well, when I first uh, started studying with him, he was doing a piece called Amagio a Joyce. And what was that? That was his very sexy wife, Kathy Barbarian, reading Finnegan's Wake. How many of you have read Finnegan's Wake? Ah, amazing, but I haven't. Uh, uh, but I mean, it's basically unreadable. It's the last thing Joyce wrote after Ulysses. And, uh, but she's reading it, which is basically all fractured into, into phonemes anyway. And then Berio is cutting up these tapes into even smaller pieces. So you're getting the cut. <laughs> then uh, when he was actually teaching the class to us, he said to us, I want to play you two pieces of Karl Heinz Stockhausen. Piece number one was electronic studies, all coming out of sine wave generators. Piece number two was Gesang the Junglinger. And I thought, Gesang the Junglinger, because this is the voice of a, of a young boy. And I realized I am drawn to the human voice as a source of tape music. And that's sort of, you know, where I stayed, all the way up through pieces like uh, Different Trains, and the music, which was then a key to music theater as opposed to opera, in the cave and Three Tales and so on. And uh, I haven't done anything recently except uh, WTC 911, which is about 911, uh, which is filled with recordings of, of, of voices. 
I want to jump to Ghana. I've read that you mentioned you were um, specifically looking at the Ashanti and the Iwa communities. Mostly Ebe and a little bit of Ashanti. Can you just like uh, set the scene for what this trip was like in practice for you, like being there? Well, it was very short because I visited my uh, my teacher was uh, actually he was at Ebe, and they are not really from Ghana; they're from Togo, which is pretty funky. And uh, I went; I wore like a tourist. I wore sandals, and uh, I had the shots from malaria, but. Uh, when I went there, I wore my sandals, and they offered me graciously um, I, a mosquito netting, uh, you know, uh, enclosed net. And when you opened it up, there was a net and 5,000 mosquitoes inside. <laughs> so I said, well, you know, thank you very much. So I spent the night, uh, first I, I played with my teacher, you know, in public, which is a long, complicated story. And then I spent the night sitting on a pail reading Newsweek with a towel over my head. <laughs> and in the morning, my feet were bright red except where the straps and the sandals were. I, I, I got a, a mild case of malaria because I had taken the thing, which means you feel like you've got a 200-pound weight on your chest. While I was there, uh, I would uh, go to... Uh, the Ghana Dance Ensemble was started at the University of Ghana Probably, you know, with English supervision, because, you know, Ghana was colonized by, by England, as opposed to um, um, Ivory Coast, which was colonized by the French. And uh, so there, there was this uh, Ghana dance ensemble, which represented the various tribes, of which there are about five dominant tribes in, in Ghana, one of which is the Ebe's, the most important of which is the Ashantis. They really, they really roost. Uh, and... Um, my lessons, I brought a, uh, a Tanberg three-speed uh, tape recorder with me. And uh, my teacher would play, uh, the, let's say, the bell pattern, which is the, the basic pattern, which is... Which can easily change into... <laughs> which is clapping music. Uh, and uh, I would, uh, and he would give me the bell, say, play it, no good, give it to me, play it. And finally, I would get it right. All of this was being recorded. Then we would move to the drumming, and you know, he would play one drum, and I would play the bell pattern, because the bell pattern is a timekeeper. And then he would play drum one, and this is recorded. And then we would switch, he would take the bell, I would take the drum, oh, no good. And basically, I was taught by rote. There's no notation in Africa. There's no notation in, in Indonesia, either. Um, and uh, where I studied Balinese gamelan later. Uh, well, I studied in California, but from Balinese teachers. And uh, so uh, in five weeks' time before I got the malaria, I had a notebook with a number of, 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 of uh, basically quasi-transcriptions of whole short pieces and a lot of recordings. And the way I got the recordings accurate, because, you know, when you hear something uh, in, in, in African music, it's very easy to distort it and simplify it into something that's familiar to you. So this machine could slow it down in half and into thirds. So it was really a boom, boom, boom. And I was able to transcribe, I think, more accurately. And then I sent my transcriptions to A.M. Jones at the London School of African and Oriental Studies, who was... The, wrote the book that inspired me to go to Africa in the first place and who studied Avery music in particular. And he said, yeah, you, you got it right. Yeah. 
basically, uh, it was a process of learning by rote, writing it down in a music notebook, and um, making recordings to, to get to the point of being able to make that notation. And when we got home, I thought to myself, well, what am I going to do with this? Uh, and I brought home a number of African bells, uh, where, you keep, where you play those timekeeping patterns. One of the most famous ones is the gong gong. It's a small bell and a large bell. You know, and I brought them back and I thought, well, what am I going to do with this? And I don't have perfect pitch. So when I got back and I, I, put, I played the piano, I said, oh, these things are out of tune. And then I thought, well, what am I going to do? Take a metal file? You know, it kind of, it felt like a kind of rape, you know, because this comes from a certain culture and I'm saying, well, no, you're going to, you're going to play my, my, my ball game. And so instead, I had musicians in my ensemble, which were, because I went to Ghana in 1970, my, my ensemble began in 1966. And we would go to parties and we'd sit on the floor and we had four African bells and we'd play, you know, everybody would say, hey, yeah, that's cool, you know. <laughs> so, you know, if you like Scarlatti, play Scarlatti. If you like African bell patterns, play African bell patterns. <laughs> so I began to realize there's no place for these things in my music. They have their own story to tell. But the thinking that's in it, which is that uh, rhythmic patterns can be superimposed on each other to perform counterpoint, and that 12, as I had discovered before I went to Africa, in piano phase and violin phase, is a kind of magic number in that it can be one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, amongst other things, or five and seven, or all kinds, or six and six. Uh, that ambiguity of, of rhythm is really runs rife in, in any group of 12. Uh, and these are things that I discovered before I went to Africa and that were reinforced. So what was the real effect of going to Africa? It was a big pat on the back saying, yeah, you are a drummer. Go on. Continue. It's okay. You're writing this repetitious music with, with interlocking rhythm patterns. Go ahead. There's a long history of that. It may not be in the West, but it's over here. So thank you very much. You know, and and uh, so that, that, was, that was the real nitty-gritty of it. If anyone is interested in asking a question, we can perhaps squeeze in one or two quite quickly, if anyone's interested. So I was wondering how study, studying philosophy affected your music, and also what do you think is useful about academic music, and what do you think its sort of limits are? Very good questions, very good questions. Um, the first question was... Right, 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 right. Uh, I, I really didn't study much philosophy as such. I studied Wittgenstein, Ludwig Wittgenstein, and really the, sec the, the later Ludwig Wittgenstein, which is, is in a book of his called The Philosophical Investigations. Um, just parenthetically, Wittgenstein was a, was a genius, and his brother was Paul Wittgenstein, who in World War I lost his right arm, and for, he was a pianist, and for whom Ravel wrote the concerto for the left hand. Uh, Wittgenstein himself was incredible and used to, they say, he would whistle through entire concertos, pausing for significant passages. <laughs> so this was not your average, everyday guy. Uh, uh, Wittgenstein focused on every, everyday language as the way to understand philosophical problems. So he'd say, well, how can an immaterial mind be in a material body, which is a very classical philosophical problem. He'd say, well, how would you teach a child the word mind? It's a noun, right? Would you teach it the same way as you teach the word spoon? They're both nouns. And by investigating that kind of questions, he said, I'm not doing philosophy, I'm doing therapy. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, I, I found his thinking enormously uh, deep and amazingly uh, matter-of-fact and right, you know, pie on the plate. 
Um, and he also had a common saying that he says to his students, he said, get an honest job. <laughs> i.e. don't become a professor of philosophy. So I got a, uh, I, I, I was at Cornell, I graduated in 1957, and I was accepted at Harvard Graduate School in Philosophy, and I, I said, I just can't do it, because I really love Stravinsky, I really wanted to be a composer, and I was afraid, no, oh, maybe I'm, I'm, I, I graduated at 16, I thought I graduated at uh, 17, I thought, well, maybe I'm too old. And I got very good encouragement from uh, my music teacher at Cornell, William Marston, and so I went down and started studying with Hall Overton, who was a composer and a jazz musician and a good friend of Thelonious Monk and did all the arrangements with Thelonious Monk. And studying with him was a huge help, and from there I went to Juilliard. Uh, now, you ask about studying music at school. Uh, any of you, I know a lot of you here are, are working in electronic, any of you actually in a music school of one sort or another? Well... <laughs> This is a personal question. I, I would highly advise any of you who are interested in music to get as much musical education as you possibly can. Um, what use is it? Who knows? Uh, I remember you have one of the standard things you have to study in music school is four-part harmony. And I remember, which is basically going through what Bach did by ear in the Bach chorales only it's now been codified, and you learn various no parallel fifths, et cetera, all the things you've learned. And I remember writing music for Mallard Instruments, Voices and Organ, which you heard last night, which I think, I just love that piece. I'm just so glad to hear that last night. And uh, I was writing uh, harmony for that electric organ part and synth part. <laughs> and uh, I realized, here I am, 35, 36 years old, and I'm, I'm writing four-part harmony. You know, who would have thought? <laughs> And I'm not always following the rules, but I know the rules, and if I don't do them, then I'm doing them purposely. Uh, so I, I, I think that however you can learn what happened beforehand, musically speaking, you will find that there's, uh, as they says in Ecclesiastes, there really is nothing new under the sun. It can sound differently. It can be achieved in different ways, but it will refer to something that someone has done uh, in some way that you're probably not aware of and might be aware of. And then when you're aware of that, you'll, it will just touch your mind off in a way that I can't possibly predict, but I can predict that it will be helpful. The limits uh, of, of academic music are that while you're there, you're really there to imitate something else, things that came before you. And uh, this is not creative in the, in the normal sense, it's training. It's like, you know, doing calisthenics, you know, and if you do calisthenics, your body will be the better for it, but you may not be too excited, you know, when you're on the treadmill. Uh, I'm not too excited when I do I'm on the treadmill, but I do it. Uh, so uh, it, it, it is worthwhile endeavor, which is a little bit, uh, you know, uh, you want to just stick with it and knowing that it will, it, will, it will be valuable to you in ways that you can't always see how it could possibly be valuable to you. Uh, but I highly recommend it, and uh, I think your creative period tends to begin when you get out of school. It did for me, not for everybody, but that tends to be the paradigm. All right, well, thanks one more time for being with us, Mr. Steve Reich. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming.